Good morning. Yeah, that was horrible. Good morning. That was much better. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here for the Lord. Isn't that why we're here? You know, this is a special day, not because it is um, the day that we just decided that we're going to come together for worship, but this is a special day because this is the day the Lord decided we were going to come together for worship. And so it's all about Him. And so it is just such a genuine joy for us to be here and be together. I'm going to talk about modesty this morning. I'm just going to lay it out on the table. I'm not going to beat around the bush. Just going to tell you I want to talk about modesty. So bring up the slide. And it's just a single slide for today. And I'm going to ask the question, put it under the umbrella, what's hanging on your clothesline? Now, how many of you know what a clothesline is? Oh, more than I thought. We've got some of you that don't know what a clothesline is, but just to let you know, in case maybe you don't know what a clothesline is, uh, there used to be a time when folks didn't have dryers. And some of you don't even know what a dryer is because, that, you know, maybe your parents just do all the laundry and you don't even think about it. Well, a dryer is what you use to dry your clothes, just so you know. Well, before that, you would have a clothesline. Maybe it was tied between a couple of trees, or maybe there were posts that would be set up in the backyard and a, a line there, and you would have clothespins. And I'm really having to give too much explanation to introduce this topic, so this is a horrible illustration. I already know. But um, this is the umbrella that I want to put our topic of conversation under. What's hanging on your clothesline? And when I say modesty, I know, especially based on the illustration that I'm using, I know that your mind is going right in to what you wear. Is that what you were thinking about? Yeah, see, nods. And you're spot on. That, that <laughs> modesty has a lot to do with, the, with dress. But if that's all we think about under the umbrella of modesty, the concept of modesty, we're really sadly mistaken. Because modesty is talking about something that is well-ordered, right? That's what it means, something that's well-ordered. I want to tell on myself, a little self-disclosure if you don't mind. Yesterday, Emily and I went to uh, do some, little, some furniture shopping. I like furniture shopping about as much as I like going to the mall. I don't like going to the mall at all. Uh, but we had to go do a little furniture shopping, needed a new couch. Old couch wasn't the best quality, showing its age, uncomfortable, not good on my back. Uh, and probably not good on your back either if you've come and sat in our couch. Well, decided to go furniture shopping, and I, I'm just going to admit I'm really picky. And Yes, I'm picky, Emily. I admit it fully. Well, we're going around and we're looking at all of the couches and I'm thinking, now this is not going to work. It's too expensive. We're not spending that kind of money on a couch. Then I look over here at this couch and I think, yeah, I really, like, I really like that one, but maybe Emily doesn't like it. And then I see a couch and I think, man, this, is, this was within the budget. This, it's, it's comfortable. But as I look at the couch, the arms of the couch, they don't roll just right. Or there are these little... These little, ta- I don't know what they're called, buttons, tabs, whatever. And it just does something crazy to my eyes when I look at it because it really should be, there should be some underneath it. Or 
I don't like the legs on this couch because they're square and the leather chair that I love that's not going anywhere, it's round. And so the legs on the couch need to match the legs on. You know what that lady, that sales lady said? You've got OCD, don't you? I said, no, I diagnose people with OCD. I don't have OCD, so no. Well, what's the point? We understand something about being well-ordered. I wanted the couch to be well-ordered. I'm thinking about our worship. Our worship is well-ordered, isn't it? It's not by our design, though, either. You know, we, we came up with the what, three songs and a couple of prayers and a sermon and, and the, the structure, the, the order in which we do those things. But, but we didn't come up with the idea, well, we're going to sing and we're going to pray and we're going to have the Lord's Supper every first day of the week and we're going to give of our means and we're going to have preaching. We didn't come up with that. We, we found that in the scripture and so that's why we do it. Um, when you take the the worship itself, and you, you look at each component, each, each one of those components should be well-ordered. You think about our prayers. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but our prayer leaders uh, do a wonderful job in the organization of their prayer. And sometimes, I, I don't know about if this is true with all of those that lead prayers, but, but sometimes I can't help but wonder, just because I'm an inquisitive person, are the prayer leaders writing down their prayers and reading their prayers as they're addressing God for us? There's nothing wrong with that. It's a wonderful practice. Uh, but they're just so well-ordered, it makes me think that sometimes. When I was a student at Freed Hardeman, we attended a little uh, country church, a lot of little country churches around Henderson. and um, We went out there on Sundays, and I would preach from time to time. And There was a fella that led prayer. And every one of his prayers was shaped in the way of a poem. Most beautiful prayer you've ever been a part of. Just such beautiful content. And then it, w- it was a poem. Well, there's nothing that says you can't use po- poemic uh, type of prayer as you're talking to God. Just really fascinating. It's well-ordered. We know something about things that are well-ordered, whether it be our worship or our lives. I want to make a few observations about modesty. And they don't all have to do with what we wear. The first observation I want to make about modesty has to do really with what's, what's up here, what's in our mind, our thoughts. We need to have well-ordered or modest thoughts. Listen to these words in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. We know them well. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, guess what? Think on these things. These are the types of things that should be in our hearts, our Bible heart is our mind. These are the kind of things that should be in our mind. Why? Why is it so important that we have a well-ordered mind or a well-ordered Bible heart? Because everything that we say, 
everything that we do, every way that we dress, begins with the mind, doesn't it? Listen to these words. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it, the heart, the mind, are the issues of life. Now, what does that mean? Keep thy heart with all diligence. Put yourself in check. Put yourself in check. And it's tough sometimes, isn't it? Diligence. Turn over to uh, Philippians chapter 2. I want to show you something. This, this passage talks about having a mind like Jesus' mind. I love this passage. You've, you've heard me recite it several times. And, and I'm not going to stop it, nor am I going to apologize for it, because it's just such a fantastic passage. Check this out. It says in verse number 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, if you back up to verse number 2, you're going to see the term like-minded and mind. So, in verses 2 and 3, like-minded, mind, and mind. Verse 4, Look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, made in the likeness of men, found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. One, two, three, four. At least four times there's a reference to the word mind here. And when you look at it in verse number 5 and connect the dots, let this mind be in you, quite literally what Paul is saying is give your mind a workout so that your mind becomes more like whose? Jesus. That's what this passage is saying. Well, what was Jesus' mind like? It was, it was about being a servant. It was about humbling himself, putting himself under the Father. Keep thy heart, thy mind, with all diligence, its work. For out of it are the issues of life. In Proverbs 23 and verse 7 it says, um, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Again, recalling a memory from Fried Hardeman. I was in Preacher in His Work. Was the name of the course. It was taught by Billy Smith, who recently retired. He said, and I don't know if this originated with him or not, but he said, if you sow a thought, you reap an action. If you sow an action, you reap a character. If you sow a character, you reap a destiny. Isn't that a remarkable concept? Where did it begin? Your thought. Where did it end? There or there? No, not the ceiling and the floor. I'm pointing here because of heaven, and I'm pointing here because of hell. Now, it all starts here. You see the, po the point, the value of making sure that our minds are properly ordered? Let me take you to another passage. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And I love to hear those pages turn in the Bible. Um, but there is still a great deal of love for you if you use like a tablet or a smartphone. We love you too. I just like to hear the pages turning as we're studying together. Romans chapter 1. 
Look at verse number 23. Or verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the image made to a corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things... Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up. Now, we're just going to put a peg there for a second. Going back to verse 24, underline that phrase in your mind if you've not done it in your text. It says, God also gave them up. Verse 26. God gave them up. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women to change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise all the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. Now verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. Same idea as previously said in verses 26 and 24. God gave them up. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. What happens if we fail to have a well-ordered mind if we're not careful what we think? Well, God says, there's nothing in this world you won't do. If your mind is not well-ordered, if you don't know what you think and what you believe and why you believe it and are able to defend what you believe, then guess what? You'll be open to accepting anything and everything, even those things that are contrary to the will of God. You keep going in the text. What were those things which were not convenient? Filled with unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Whoa, what a second. Disobedient to parents. Yep, that's in that list. Without understanding covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable unmerciful who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do the same but have pleasure in them that do them this has been dubbed the blackest catalog of sins in all the Bible and it comes from a result of not having a well-ordered mind of not being modest in thought but second of all I want us to think about being modest in attitude Modest in attitude. In Proverbs chapter 6, in fact, let's just turn over there. We don't want to miss this. Proverbs chapter 6. Check out verse 16. These six things doth the Lord hate. Now I'm interested. Do you, have, do you ever have those moments where you're reading Scripture and you, you get to a phrase as you're, as you're reading the Scripture and it's like the hair stands up on the back of your neck? You, you get a, a chill or a goosebump or something like that. This is one of those passages. These six things doth the Lord hate. I'm, I'm listening. Seven are an abomination to Him. 
a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Pretty interesting list. Did you notice how it began? A proud look. And so when we think about modesty of attitude, we want to be careful about having pride. Some boast in their riches. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 49, 6 and 7. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves to a multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. You may have it all. And God says, doesn't make me any difference. Some boast in their riches. Some boast in their evil deeds. In Psalm 94 and verse 4, How long shall they utter and speak hard things, and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? Have you ever been around someone that it seems like a great deal of what they enjoy talking about is their history that was wicked? There's a far cry from that individual and the individual over here that tells the wickedness of their past and it's quite obvious that it breaks their heart. And perhaps it is motivated by challenging this person over here to say, don't follow the same path that I followed. Some boast of their wickedness. Some boast of their goodness. In Luke 18, 11, and 12, we're familiar with this. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the language here would be as if the, this fella is not talking to God at all. Not honoring him. But he's really talking to himself as his own deity. And God, I, I'm thankful I'm not like this, this lowly sinner down here. But I'm this great God. The lowly sinner can't even look up into heaven. God, would you be merciful to me, a sinner? He saw himself for what he was. But some boast about their goodness. The very spirit of Christianity, though, is opposed to this. You know, when you think about going and applying for a job and you give your resume or your CV to whomever it is, and then you go and have that interview. What is the expectation? Talk about all of the, all of the things you know and all of the things you're good at. Really pump yourself up to be somebody. How does that make you feel as a Christian? Is it, does it make you feel a little uncomfortable to do that sort of thing? Or does it give you great pleasure? Well, for Christians, it should make us feel a little bit uncomfortable because it is just the opposite of what Christianity is all about. We're supposed to have spirits of humility. 
When you think about that list of sins that we just read in Romans chapter 1, boasting was one of them. And then you just surround it with all of those others. Not a good thing. Well, number three. I think that modesty of speech is another really important one for us to consider. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8, But now put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, put those things out of your mouth. We talked a little bit from Second Peter chapter uh, 3, or 2 rather, uh, this morning, and the last verse talking about vomiting, that which you have eaten, and taking it back in. I know that was really gross. Or seeing the pig that's been cleaned up and going back into wallowing in the mire, the King James Version says. We know a little something about things that are disgusting and gross and, 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 and wanting things well-ordered, clean. But what about the cleanliness of our speech? I've known some people that, boy, they, they dress, as we say, to the nines. Sharp, fancy, clean, probably bathe five times a day. But they need to wash their mouth out with soap. It's not just about the way we look, but it's also about what comes out of our mouth. We're responsible for what we think. And we're responsible for the way we say things. In Ephesians 4, verse 29, Paul said, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. I always feel like this verse goes completely out the window when football season rolls around. Because people are just not gracious when they talk about the University of Tennessee football. Now, I, understand, I understand a little bit about that as of recent years, but, but you, you understand what I'm saying. The point of our words to one another in the grand scheme of things is to try to help one another go to heaven, isn't it? Isn't that the primary objective of what we say? To build one another up, to strengthen one another? God reminds us that we're going to be word, uh, judged by every idle word. Number four, I think there has to be modesty of action. What we think, you know, I, I think that's so important. What we say, it's so important. Well, what we do is also important. First Timothy 4, verse 12, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, or manner of life, in charity, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. If your thoughts aren't right, your attitudes aren't going to be right, your words are not going to be right, and your actions are not going to be right. Let me just mention a few actions. One that comes to mind is premarital sex. I'm just being blunt, but that's one. If I speak very plainly, we are living in a in a sex-charged society. Whether we're talking about 
television, what we see there, what we're ta- whether we're talking about what we see on the billboards, whether we're talking about what we see on the internet. Sex-charged society. It seems as though teenagers are especially vulnerable to this. You know, their bodies are developing physically, hormonally, and it's at this time when young folks become sexually active quite often. If we were to continue that line of thinking, we could see the negative consequences of engaging in a relationship that was designed for a husband and wife in in their home when they're married. You know, sex isn't a dirty word. We need to be careful with this when we're teaching our children, I think. I think sometimes children, they grow up and they even get married, and then they're uncomfortable with it. Maybe because they were taught inappropriately so that sex was something that's dirty, but it's not. Sex was created by God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It's part of God's plan to continue man's existence. Existence, chapter 1, verse 28. And it was designed for pleasure within marriage, Genesis 2, 22 through 24. But outside of that, it's a sin, Galatians 5, 19. It deprives a future spouse from that which belongs to them and their physical consequences as a result of that behavior, Proverbs 5, 3 through 14. But there are also emotional consequences as a result of it. Loss of respect, hurting other people who love you, searing your own conscience, just to name a few. Here's another one, drinking. The Bible brands strong drink as evil, as an evil. And yet, a lot of folks, even Christians, have created all kinds of reasons to conclude something otherwise. Some have no trouble substituting their own ideas for what the Bible says. But here's what the Bible says. It brings shame. That according to the life of Noah, Genesis 9, 20 through 25. But number two, it makes unaware of impending evil. Think about Lot and his two daughters, Genesis 19, 30 through 36. It blurs distinction, Proverbs 20 and verse 1. It brings sorrow, Isaiah 24, verse 9. And it robs the heart, Hosea 4, verse 11. I'll mention one more, then we'll move on. Thinking about actions, well-ordered actions, some forms of entertainment. Some forms of entertainment rob us of being the kind of people that God wants us to be. Could be our movies, could be the things that we listen to. It could be the things that we read. It could be the places that we venture on the Internet. All of those things. Number five. When I think about modesty, a well-ordered life, thought, attitude, and speech, and action, I think about dress. I do think about that. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Again, well-ordered would be the word. The Bible's very clear that it's 
modest apparel. And yet a lot of folks look at modesty as something that's subjective. In other words, what's immodest to you is not necessarily immodest to me. But yet the Bible identifies what is modest. In 1 Timothy 2, again, verses 9 and 10, I want to read the whole section. It says that in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godless, godliness and good works. And so what we adorn, what we wear, has got to profess godliness and good works. And what's interesting here is that this is in a context that's, that's quite opposite of what we normally think about when we think about the term modest. You know, normally when we think about modesty, we don't think about gold and jewels, pearls, and things of that nature, such as was mentioned in the text, but we think about showing too much skin. Isn't that right? Isn't that what we normally think about when we think about the word modest? Man, I think there's good reason for that. But in this passage, it's actually talking about wearing too much. Isn't that interesting? I preached a sermon several years ago on the subject of modesty, and I made a comparison between James Bond and Jack Bauer. I don't know if you know those characters. Probably most of you at least have heard of James Bond. I'll admit to you, I've never seen a James Bond movie. But... You say James Bond to me, I'm thinking cars. I'm a car guy. I really like cars. And uh, he had some really cool cars. That's the first thing I think about. The second thing I think about when I think about James Bond is he was always wearing a tuxedo. When I would see those advertisements, he was always wearing a tuxedo. Tuxedo, really cool car. Seems like a cool guy to me. Jack Bauer. He was also, I guess, you know, similar to James Bond in the sense that he was trying to save the world. But Jack Bauer, every time I would see him, it would be a t-shirt and blue jeans. Both trying to save the world, one of them doing it in a tux and a cool car, the other one is doing it in jeans and a t-shirt. Don't dress like James Bond when dressing like Jack Bauer will do the job. That's kind of the point. Well, the idea is there are times that we wear the jewels and times when we don't wear the jewels. There are times when we dress up. There are times when we don't dress up. We don't want to draw improper attention to ourselves. That's the idea of being well-ordered here, modest apparel. But then if we continue to dig around in the Bible a little bit, we find more. Look in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. A wonderful principle here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Now this, just refreshing your memory, uh, this is just after the, the situation in the garden when Adam and Eve, they've sinned, they've taken of the forbidden tree. Uh, Eve first, she's tricked by the devil. And uh, she takes the, of the fruit and she gives to her husband and, and he takes the fruit and and the Bible tells us that after they did that, God had told them not to do it. They could eat of every tree in the garden except for the one in the middle, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The day that you eat thereof, you'll, you'll surely die. 
talking about they're going to be banned from the garden, not going to be able to have access to the tree of life, and surely they're going to begin to die physically that day and die spiritually for sure. But as soon as they did that, you know what the Bible says? Their eyes were open. That doesn't mean they had their eyes closed. It just meant that their awareness was there. We've done something wrong. Our eyes are open. And you know what they did? Look at verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for the food, and it was pleasant for the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave to her husband, and he did eat. And the eyes of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. Or naked, depending on where you grew up. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They made themselves aprons. What is an apron? Well, you know what an apron is. It's something that you wear when you cook. Not the same kind of apron. That kind of apron probably covers you better than this kind of apron. Another word that's used in English to describe that Hebrew word, chagora, I don't, my Hebrew's not as, as good as Greek, but, but the Hebrew word there is a word that's referencing a belt. So it didn't cover a whole lot. You and I would say they were still naked. In fact, God said, you're still naked. So we go a little further, and it says, and they heard the voice of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God amongst the, uh, the trees of the garden, and the Lord God and called to Adam and Eve, where are you? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, well, who told you you were naked? And my follow-up question would be, and what's wrong with being naked? <laughs> You're the only two people in the garden. You're married. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that they were married. They were husband and wife. What's wrong with that? I'll tell you what's, what we're getting here is we're getting a universal principle. And you know what's cool about a universal principle is that it's universal. It doesn't change. Universal principles are just always there. They don't change. And so God was establishing a universal principle. So if you go a little further here, drop down to verse number, we'll start in verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins, and he clothed them. Now, I don't know, and I, I know some folks have well intentions here, but I don't know the exact inch that the coats of skin covered. But I know what the word means and what it's representing. It's representing a covering that is much more than how Adam and Eve clothed themselves, and it wouldn't take much more. If you do a word study there, it would seem to indicate it would be from the shoulder unto the thigh. Well, how do you define that word unto? Well, you know how to do that. Revelation 2 verse 10 says, Be thou faithful unto death, and ye shall receive the crown of life. So it doesn't mean, it doesn't say until death. And a lot of people uh, dress today from the shoulder 
until the thigh. Meaning, once you hit that thigh, well, just don't have to cover anything else. A lot of folks dress that way. That's not what it means. Unto, through the point of. So, if I'm being challenged by my faith and someone says, curse God or die, well, I better just die. Because unto means, even if it means to die for the Lord. Just like unto means through the thigh. Let me give you a little more insight here. If, jump over to Exodus chapter 20. Of course, 10 commandments, about 613 commandments in all. The, the 10 commandments that we're often familiar with are here in Exodus chapter 20. But Exodus chapter 20, verse 21, it says, And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near into the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Ye shall not make with uh, me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings, and thy peace offerings, thy sheep, and thine oxen, in all places where I record my name. I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone, for if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. When you study what the priests wore when they were making these sacrifices, they wore undergarments made of linen, most definitely white, representing purity. And those undergarments would cover that thigh area. Why? It's not rocket science. When you're climbing up a ladder and there are people below and you happen to drift your eyes up, you with me? So they were covered so that their nakedness was not shown. Now, I think if you uh, walk through the grocery store, we're not even talking about just you know, going down to the river. We're talking about just going to the grocery store. Nakedness is all around, isn't it? I mean, let's just be honest. But let's not let it be a set of us. You with me? Why? Well, because we're modest. We're well-ordered. We're pure. We're different. First Peter chapter 2. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Yeah, I know some people will think we're weird, but let them say what they want. I'd rather be weird and in the right relationship with the Lord than to not be thought of as weird in the world and be in the wrong relationship with the Lord. Just a few things to think about as we consider the idea of What's hanging on our clothesline? What's hanging on your clothesline? How are your thoughts? What are they like? Are they modest? Are they pure? What about your attitude? What's it like? Is it modest? Is it well arranged? Do you have yourself under control? What about your words? 
Do you keep your words in check, understanding, of course, that one of these days we're going to appear before the Lord and, and we're going to be held accountable of every idle word that we spoke? What about your actions? What are they like? Are they modest? Are they well arranged? Are they pure? What about what you wear? What about our clothing? You say, well, it's what's on the inside that counts. I understand that. And what we do on the outside reflects what's on the inside. Think about it. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, we invite you to become a Christian. There is no greater thing that you could do for yourself and for those that you love right now than to become a child of God. You say, how do you do that? Well, it's simple. It really is. When I think about what those folks in the first century did, you know, when we pick up our Bible and we look over in the second part of it, it's got the New Testament there, and uh, those folks lived in the first century. They were the first ones to become Christians, according to Jesus. When I think about what they did to be Christians, it's really quite simple. Well, what did they do? The Bible says that they heard that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And they believed it with all their heart, and they confessed it. Matthew 10, 32, and 33, Romans 10, 15 through 17. Now, based on that confession, they understood that they still weren't in Christ. Because the only way they could get in Christ was doing it Jesus' way. And it makes sense, because he's the one who came and died. So what was his way? Galatians 3, 26 and 27 says, As many of us have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So you want to put on Christ, you've got to be baptized into Christ. Now, what does that do for you, other than put you in Christ? It removes every sin of the past from your life. Everything. Attitudes that weren't right, thoughts that weren't right, words that weren't right, actions that weren't right, dressing that wasn't right, whatever. It, took, it takes care of all of that. And Romans chapter 6 says that after we're baptized, we come up out of that watery grave, it's called. We come out of that watery grave... We're brand new. And we're raised to walk a new life. That could be you. That could be you today. A new person. And you leave this place and go to lunch and you could tell everybody, I'm not the same person I was yesterday. If you're a Christian, but you haven't been reflecting the love of Jesus in your life, by having a modest life, a well-ordered life. This would be a good time to reflect on some things and, and to make some decisions to be in the right relationship with the Lord again, maybe even with your brethren. Think about it. See so together we stand and as we sing.